Welcome to the SoulWorks Podcast, a place where we explore self-care strategies that lead us to our well-being and highest self. I'm your host, Ade Chakol. Hi, beautiful souls. Thank you for joining me today. I'm here with Dr. Bethlehem Asnaga. She's anesthesiologist, uh, such a beautiful soul. I got to know Betty on Instagram and all her posts are extremely inspiring. And especially during this uncertain time with what's going on with the coronavirus, she's first line worker there. And I'm just so grateful for her. So I have her here and, you know, she does amazing work in global health and also reaches out to other people who are trying to get into the medical field as a mentor. So she's just a beautiful soul. And I'm just so grateful to have her here with me. Beatty, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ade. It's my pleasure to be here today. Thank you. So before I jump in and start asking you all questions, this is something I ask all of my guests. So what's your morning routine like? My morning routine for like a work day or like a weekend? Either one. Yeah. So uh, my work day morning routine is vastly different from my weekend, like when I don't have work. So usually I wake up around 5 a.m. for work because I have to be in the hospital by at least like 6.30 a.m. So usually I wake up, I do a quick prayer, and then, um, you know, I take a shower. I, you know, make sure I have food for the day. So I pack my lunch and breakfast. I don't have time to eat breakfast at home. So usually I take my breakfast and lunch to work. And uh, I make sure I grab all the things I need for work, which is like my stethoscope, my, you know, the regular things that we need. Now, during this time with COVID, my routine has completely changed. <laughs> so that's something I can go into it later, but I, I have a mask and I do certain things I have to do before I get to work. That's a bit different. In terms of the weekend, you know, I sleep in and for me, sleeping in means sleeping until 7 a.m. because I usually wake up around 5 a.m. So I'm usually up by 7 a.m. and I've already had two extra hours of sleep. And then most of my weekend routines include reading the Bible in the morning, praying. I'm a pretty spiritual person and that kind of keeps me grounded most of the time. And then, you know, depending on how I feel, I make, usually I make a pretty big brunch uh, for myself and my loved ones. And then I go about my day. I exercise pretty regularly as well. So when I have days I'm not working, like on a weekend, I either run in the morning or at nighttime. So that's mm -hmm. kind of like the gist of my morning routine. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. So, you know, I want you to tell us about your background because I know that you do amazing work and you have such a fascinating background. So can you tell us about, you know, before you even became an anesthesiologist, what life looked like and then why you decided to become a doctor and your journey? Can you share that with us? Sure. Yeah, so, you know, I'm Ethiopian. I was born and raised in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa. That's where I grew up and I went to school there until high school. I went to a French school there, so I speak French, which is great. You know, I feel like it has helped me a lot in terms of navigating the world in general. And then from high school, my entire family immigrated to Los Angeles. So I was in L.A., 
uh, by the age of 16 or so. And I did two years of high school. I did my junior and senior year of high school in LA. And then from there, I went on to undergrad. I did my undergrad at UCLA, then took a year off working um, in, I was a tutor for some time. So I was tutoring high school students for some time for about a year. And then I went to graduate school. So I have a master's in science in pharmacology and toxicology. And then from then I went to medical school. Uh, This is in Virginia at the University of Virginia. And then after medical school, I um, went to do my internship, which is the next step after medical school. And I did that UCSD, which is the University of California, San Diego. I was there for a year. I did internal medicine. And then I did my anesthesia training at UC Davis in Sacramento. And then earlier, I guess mid last year during the summer, I moved to San Francisco to do a fellowship in global health and equity in anesthesia while I'm also working as an anesthesiologist. So currently I'm finishing up my fellowship in global health and equity, which is a subspecialty in anesthesia. And I'm working as as an anesthesiologist the rest of the time. So that's kind of like my educational background for the question of why I wanted to become a physician. I've always wanted to become a physician. Uh, this is as far as I remember, since I was probably like, I think nine or 10 years old, I've always told my family I was going to become one. I think part of the reason was because my growing up, my sister had a really bad asthma in Ethiopia, uh, a really severe asthma, and it required her to go to the hospital multiple times, sometimes even during the, the night, like in the middle of the night. I remember us like rushing her to the hospital so she can get the uh, an epinephrine shot which is like kind of the end line like the last line of treatment for asthma so that your lungs open up you know so it was a pretty scary time I think for all of us and we've been dealing with that and I we made so many visits to the hospital that I was always there almost and then later on I had a, my own medical complication and um, issues I required surgery at some point when I was a teenager and that required a little bit of time to recover and so you know I feel like I was very much exposed to the medical field and then also my dad was pretty sick at some point too he had heart failure and kidney diseases as well so you know as you can tell my entire family has always has been to the hospital at some point in their lives and I feel like as a person, I've always been there and seeing physicians, being around physicians and the medical team has always inspired me to be like them and to just understand the medical lingo. So that was my initial interest. And after that, you know, I did some shadowing experience in undergrad and did a lot of community outreach in medicine and things like that, that really sparked my interest in medicine and, you know, um, solidified my interest. So that's kind of like where my interest lies currently. Uh, I am doing anesthesia, and the reason I chose anesthesia, again, is going back to myself uh, when I had surgery. My very first exposure to the anesthesiologist is when I had my own surgery, and I had no idea there's such thing as an anesthesiologist. And I remember the surgeon telling my family and myself that this case is going to really depend, and your complication rate is really going to depend on how much the anesthesiologist is able to uh, manage your blood pressure. So, you know, at that point, I was like, who's this anesthesiologist person who's supposed to be keeping me alive, you know? And so that's kind of how my interest in anesthesia sparked. And then when I did my master's in pharmacology, which is basically the study of uh, drugs and physiology, 
which is basically a precursor for anesthesia. Anesthesia is uh, the study of medications, drugs, and physiology, pretty much, and pathology. So with that background, I really started to fight my interest in anesthesia. That's what I'm doing now. It's a great job. I love my job. And with that, you know, I, I'm doing a global health and equity fellowship because global health to me is something that's really dear to my heart. And there's a lot of inequity in anesthesia around the world. And I wanted to specialize and do something that's a little bit uh, formal, training that's a bit formal in that. So that's, that's that. Wow, that's beautiful. Well, first of all, I commend you for, you know, following your dream, because most of us as children, you know, uh, we want to become something, either doctors or engineers or teachers or whatever. But somewhere during the line in life, life happens and we don't pursue that. And actually, we become brainwashed with whatever society tells us to become or, you know, we just don't follow through that. And I just, you know, it makes me so happy to see that people who know what they want to to become at a young age and actually pursue that. I, I just think that's so beautiful. So uh, that's amazing. Thank you. And Thank I, you so much. Uh, yeah. And you know what? I absolutely understand the role anesthesiologists play in healthcare because my son, when he was three years old, he had to have his tonsils and adenoids removed. Mm -hmm. And his surgeon, you know, had a really good relationship with him and he was amazing. But my concern was anesthesia and the anesthesiologist who, you know, worked with him was amazing and how he really made me feel comfortable. He, he actually took me to the room, to the OR, and I was holding my son's hand while he was administering it. And that made me just so grateful. And you guys are amazing. So thank you for the work that you do. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. And, you know, so you love to travel. I noticed that from many of your posts, you say that you like to travel. So why is traveling so important to you? And more importantly, with your busy schedule, how does it all fit in? Yeah. So I do love to travel. I love, love, love traveling. <laughs> it doesn't even matter where I'm going. Sometimes I just need to get away, you know. It really matters to me because it really exposes you to new culture. That's, I think that's the main thing I love about traveling. And I usually tend to travel to areas that are not high income. Sometimes I do, but really a lot of the places I really do enjoy traveling into is places that don't have a lot economically. Um, like, uh, you know, like parts of Africa, parts of Asia. I haven't been to South America yet, but it really for me is like just seeing authentic culture seeing how people live, you know, sometimes when we isolate ourselves in like in this country, for instance, there are people who have never left this country. And to me, it blows my mind. You know, it makes you think that the entire world functions the way we function here, you know, and you go and see like you go to China, for instance, you know, and you see how the structure of things are different and people interact differently, you know, or you go to like Indonesia, you know, and you see how, things are so much more laid back and people value time and value interpersonal connections, you know? And so you come back and you're like, oh my goodness, like there, you it makes you realize that this is not, America is not the epicenter of the world. There are a lot of other countries that have awesome culture and great people and good economy, you know, 
and who function just fine with a different philosophy, you know, and people who have different ways of thinking. So for me, traveling is really exposing myself to a new culture, uh, a new way of living, things that I've, it really opens up my mind to things that I've, I haven't really seen before or known before. And then in terms of traveling in medicine, it's, you know, it can be hard, especially I did a lot of my traveling in residency while I was training. And I usually work about 50 to 60 hours a week, which is a lot. And I still found time to travel. So I think it's not undoable. You know, um, I think a lot of people think of traveling as a, a luxury and it can be a luxury if you're living paycheck to paycheck, which is fine, you know, but I think there's a lot of people who don't live paycheck to paycheck and choose to spend their money on other things like shoes or like, I don't know, like a nice bag or a nice car, you know? And so it really depends on how you view your world and like your life and how you want to live your life. So there's definitely room for traveling. Uh, when I was in residency, the biggest limitation for me uh, not only was financial, just financially not having enough money to travel, but also the time. So, you know, we get about a month of vacation in residency per year, which I think is pretty standard for a lot of jobs. And so I usually take like two week vacation times so that I can go out, uh, out of the country. So I will make sure I request my vacations that way. And then I'm always on, on Google flights or kayak is what I use. I'm always on there no matter what. Now I kind of slowed down a little bit, but before I used to be so proactive in terms of finding out the cheapest flights and where it is. And usually I don't have a destination in mind. There are places I would like to visit, obviously, but most of the time I just look at whatever cheap flight I find and I'm like, oh, I can possibly go to Bali, you know? So it kind of, my destination varies based on the price of the flight. Going to Cuba at some point was really cheap, you know? So, I mean, that could have been a destination. I never had a chance to go, but I used to really go through some of these websites and figure out ways to land really cheap tickets. When I do travel, I don't stay in luxurious places. I usually Airbnb, and there are some amazing Airbnbs in different countries and areas that are just sometimes better than a hotel. So you can save money that way. I almost always travel with someone else. Either I take a, a friend or someone with me or a family member so that they can split the cost of the traveling and makes it more fun. So there's definitely ways to figure out to how to travel. And that's something I would like to continue doing for the rest of my life, uh, you know, of my life. And I would like my kids to travel as well. It's something I really want to impart in not just me, but like my family. Our very first vacation, like our very first family vacation since we came to this country as a family, I mean, uh, was uh, in, uh, in Thailand. And I took my mom with there, my sister and my brother. And it became kind of like a tradition now, like once a year as a family, we go somewhere, you know, and that was started maybe three years ago, four years ago, you know, and it really opens up, you know, your parents, your sisters and other people to traveling and like seeing a new culture, enjoying yourself and, you know, bonding as a family too, you know. And so even now my mom, sometimes she's like, oh, when are we going to travel next? You know, so she, she, she loves it now, you know, at the beginning, you know, how Ethiopian parents are, they're like, oh, why do we have to go all the way to Thailand? Why can't we just go to a beach nearby? You know, <laughs> so now she's like, she's, you know, she's kind of sometimes hints and she's like, oh, are we, you know, are you guys going anywhere to travel? <laughs> and so, you know, that's definitely something I really take a lot of pride in. 
was just my mom. I've traveled, I think, with just her, I think, three or four places. She's been to two or three places in Mexico. She's been to Thailand. I don't think, I, we haven't been to Europe. But, I, you know, I've taken her to a few trips where sometimes it's just me and her. And we go and we bond and we come back, you know. And so that's something I highly mm-hmm. advocate for is budgeting money for traveling. It's so essential. And it will really change your perspective on how you look at the world. It makes you feel like, you know, like the way you live life here in America is not the only way to live life. And it helps you appreciate a lot of the stuff that we have here in this country. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what I find so inspiring is that, you know, you have a very busy schedule, you know, you're on call. And as as a doctor, we can all understand that. And, you know, other people, we're also, you know, very busy with life nowadays. But what you're doing is showing us that it doesn't matter how busy you are, but you can still make time for what you value, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. it's still possible. Yes, yeah. I totally, yeah. I totally get that. And then I mean, even for anything in life, right, your priorities, you give priorities to things, even though you're busy, right. And that's like for any job. So if you think something is important enough to you, you will make it time for it pretty much, you know. So that's why like even like exercising and healthy eating, like, if you don't think that's a priority in your life, then you're not going to exercise because you'd rather stay home and watch a movie or something, you know? So it really makes, it really depends on where your priority in life lies and how something is is important to you. And for me, what I've seen with traveling is once you start doing it, it becomes a priority, quite honestly. It just becomes a priority. I remember when I was in residency, I was doing an ICU rotation and I was on it for six weeks, uh, five weeks. And sometimes our shifts are like 30 hour shifts, like 30, 36 hour shifts. So you're in the hospital for 36 hours straight without sleep. So I remember some of the way that I would like think about the future is like, you know, I'm going to go online and I'm going to look for flight. One of the best flights I've booked was during that rotation because I was just, you know, at nighttime when I had a few minutes, I would just browse the web and I'll find cheap flights. And I flew to Bali for, I think it was like $450 round trip. And then, you know, wow. and, you can really find amazing deals. So you, you just have to look online. And the, especially now with the flights are so cheap now. No one is traveling. I'm not saying travel now, but I'm saying in general, like as we're moving forward and everything is reopening, it's definitely easy to travel. Mm, yes, definitely, mm. definitely. And that's, you know, through traveling, through understanding the world is how we discover who we are also. So like you said, we can get caught up into just our own little box in where we are. Yeah. And it's definitely important to see what's out there and discover ourselves in the meantime. So, you know, you have a very intense profession. What keeps you grounded? Yeah, I mean, definitely anesthesia is pretty intense, even compared to a lot of other subs- like specialties in medicine. It's a pretty intense field, I would say. Uh, it requires a lot of thinking on your feet, a lot of dexterity with your hands because we do a lot of procedures. It requires a lot of calmness uh, because we we are almost always in some type of crisis. <laughs> you know, when a patient, for instance, stops breathing or has uh, difficulty breathing in the ICU, we're the ones who get called and we intubate that patient. And it's a pretty high stress environment, as you can tell, if someone is like basically can't get oxygen to their lungs, you know, it becomes a pretty intense situation. We get called in the hospital for 
like if a patient loses a pulse and there's a code blue, we also get they go there and you know what we call establish an airway or uh, you know intubate that patient. We might be asked to run the entire code and make sure we give medications that we need to keep the patient, hopefully bring the patient back to life. You know, during a surgery, there can be surgical complications, and we manage some of the complications by keeping the patient stable under anesthesia. So it can be very, you know, stressful with job. It also requires a lot of, you know, thinking and learning and constant learning as well or as, as new evidence comes up. So, you know, if I think anyone needs some way to ground themselves and find a way to what we call like, you know, have good mental health, you know. So for me, one of the big things that ground me is having me time. I have me time all the time. <laughs> I want to say all the time, but I have me time on a pretty regular basis. I like to come home and unwind. Sometimes I don't answer my phone for like a whole two hours, which is long for us in our Ethiopian family. Because, you know, my sister is calling, my mom is calling, my brother calls. Like, there's so many people who can just be trying to reach you. And sometimes I don't answer. And, I, and they know. And I tell, usually tell them, hey, guys, like, I had a long shift. I'm going to sleep in tonight. Or I'll call you guys tomorrow. And they're, they're all very understanding. So during my me time, you know, I unwind. If I have to cook, I cook. If I, have, I go on a run, I run, you know. But I'm really interested in a lot of the beauty uh, beautification stuff. So I do a lot of facial masks and things like that. And I follow some people on YouTube as well. You know, these are the things that kind of ground me at the core. But then, you know, people around me also ground me. So my mom is a huge influence, obviously, in my life. And she's very good at making sure, like, even when I have complications or I had a long night or it's been like a stressful day, you know, she's always has a way of bringing me down and just kind of like relaxing me, you know, with her advice and things like that. Same thing goes with my sister and my little brother. Just very, you know, easy to talk to and having a supportive family really grounds me, you know. And then lastly, you know, I'm pretty spiritual. So I, I pray pretty regularly. I read the Bible and I have a pretty strong church community here. And, you know, they also ground me in a way. So I think it's a combination of, you know, what you do for yourself to make yourself like happy and back on track and make sure, you know, you have the energy you need to get back out there the next day and also a combination of just having a support, whether it's family or friends or colleagues and things like that. Absolutely. Yes. Oh my goodness. You said so much there, um, you know, and it applies to all of us. We need to know what grounds us, you know, what makes us who we are and then pursue that. Like you said, whether it's family or our own spiritual routine or anything, whether it's self-care, I can't emphasize on how important it is to give ourselves that time and listen to our thoughts or just sit in silence. It makes the world of a difference. And I uh, really thank you for sharing that. I want to ask you, I'm sure you know, you've seen a lot in your career, but if there was one case that made a huge impact on you personally, can you share that with us and why? Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like in anesthesia, you see so many different things. Like, you see a lot of stuff, honestly, especially working in the OR, you see a lot of traumas that happen. And really, you know, people getting into situations that they shouldn't be in or they got themselves into. You see a lot of gunshot wounds and stab wounds and people just falling off a ladder or building or people trying to kill themselves. I mean, you see like patients coming from the prison who overdosed on medications and you know so you 
what you see is like honestly like a lot so sometimes even when I come home I usually I think that reflects on me sometimes and my for instance my little brother rides a bike to like when he was here during the summer for an internship he bought a bike and he was riding a bike and I remember telling him absolutely not you're not riding a bike nowhere you're gonna take a car you know and so because I see so many like accidents where bikers get hit by cars and they're in the ICU in in a coma you know and so uh, anyways, but to answer your question, one of the, I think, I guess, some cases I've seen was a four-year-old kid. I was on call. I was on call on, at home. I was doing my pediatric anesthesia rotation, and I got called for that four-year-old kid who had multiple stab wounds and had to come in. And I got called in at maybe around 2 a.m., so I have, you know, I'm waking up from sleep. So when you get called in, you have about 30 minutes to get to the hospital. It depends on each hospital policy, but for us, it's 30 minutes from your call. You have to be available within the hospital in 30 minutes or less. So you just have time to get out of bed and put something on. Like literally, you take your badge, your glasses, and your cell phone, and your stethoscope, and just run out the door, you know? And so I remember coming in, and my I was a resident back, back then, and my attending, who was the supervisor, who was supervising me, was also there. So I got called in. We both get called in. And the operating room team gets called in as well. So the nurses who need to come in the OR gets called in. The surgeon as well gets called in. So we're all getting there. And finally, you know, we get the kid. She's a four-year-old, beautiful kid who had multiple stab wounds and uh, needs to get repaired. And we were doing an X-lab to make sure there's nothing damaged in her belly. So we're doing that procedure. And I remember when I first got the call, I was, you know, like any resident, you don't want to be called in at nighttime. You're so tired. Like, who wants to be called in at 2 a.m. to go to work, right? It's already almost a gut feeling where you're like, oh, I'm going to go to the hospital again, you know, and get called in. And then you realize that you're being called in every time you get called in for something critical and something that needs to happen for another person or another human being, you know? And so I remember getting there and I'm like, man, like, I don't know why I was so grumpy coming in when I'm like literally helping save a life, you know? And so... I think that was one of the biggest cases where I learned to be okay to be on call. It's okay to be on call. You know, a lot of people hate being on call. They don't like to be called in from home because they have their own families and kids that they take, you know, at home that they're taking care of. And so for them, it's such a big, for us, I guess in general, it's a big deal to be called in. But that I think that case made me realize, you know, there's someone on the other side that really needs my help and I'm going to help someone else. So you know, it's just kind of perspective for me and how to really understand my job in general. Like some days are so long and you're so tired. Like you do these 30 hour calls sometimes and you're exhausted and you have to think that, hey, there's someone else on the other side who's depending on me to be there and depending on my expertise. So that was kind of like a case that I would never forget, you know. It's amazing the work that you do. We're so grateful for you and all physicians. I mean, you know, the world is a crazy place. And to have people like you, it's just very touching. So that's a very touching story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. You know, also, you work in global health and equitable health. Can you share with us what that is and why you chose to go into global health? Yeah, sure. So, you know, as I said, I'm from Ethiopia and I've seen a lot of disparities growing up in Ethiopia. And for me, global health is, first of all, not just global, like it's not just a worldly health, it's also like local health. So 
on a bigger level, growing in Ethiopia, I've seen a lot of the disparities on a local level. I've seen disparities in certain communities, uh, notably in the African-American community, in the Latino community, the Native Indian community. You just see that the care that these people get in general is not equitable. And by equitable, I mean they don't have access to care a lot of the time. They don't have affordable care. They don't have timely care. So sometimes their care is delayed, which causes a lot of complications later on. And there are sometimes their quality of care is not that great either. So that's why I wanted to do a fellowship in global health and equity in anesthesia, because even though anesthesia can be somewhat of an isolated specialty where you work just in the operating room, you'd be very surprised to see access to anesthesia, to safe anesthesia is lacking, especially in some of these countries uh, who don't have good, uh, I would say, a good um, healthcare model or system. And so in this country, just to give you an idea, there's about per 100,000 people. So if you take 100,000 people, there's about 30 to 40 anesthesiologists for those people. And it's kind of like how it is in a lot of different countries in Europe or Northern America or Australia and things like that. If you look at, for instance, Ethiopia or a lot of the African countries, so Sub-Saharan Africa, if you look at some of the Asian country data in uh, Latin America, sometimes there's less than 0.5, sometimes less than 0.05 per 100,000 people, like anesthesiologists per 100,000 people. So you can imagine there's very, very few anesthesiologists to provide anesthesia care during surgery. And this is why a lot of folks in, for instance, in Ethiopia die from anesthesia complications because there are not that many people who can give it. And then a lot, some of the training of the people giving it might not be the best training they have. Sometimes it might be a lack of resources, but sometimes it can be a lack of infrastructure and facility. Sometimes it can be a lack of administration issues. So it's very multifactorial in terms of why that happens. But there's anesthesia complications that happen all the time in some of these countries. And anesthesia is not safe. That's why sometimes, you know, if in Ethiopia, you know, people, when they get surgery, they're very worried about the anesthesia. You know, they're, they're scared that something's going to happen to them or they're going to die because of that the anesthesia, which is not something you should worry about when you're having surgery in general. You know, here, dying from anesthesia is an extremely rare, rare complication. Like, uh, that almost never happens. And if it happens, it's because you have some underlying unknown uh, disorder, uh, genetic disorder, that when you get a really bad reaction, like allergic reaction to some of the medication that we use, that can be one reason. You can have a complication from getting anesthesia and your blood pressure or heart rate that's something weird and funky that we don't expect. That can happen. But overall, anesthesia is pretty safe. You know, it's a very, it's pretty safe here in this country. So with, with Global Health, you know, my aim is to educate providers around the world about safe anesthesia. Uh, as part of my fellowship, actually, last year in August, I was in Tanzania as part of the World Federation Society of Anesthesia which is the overarching organization that oversees a lot of anesthesiologists and anesthesia societies in the world. And that they had a short course for anesthesia providers on how to provide safe obstetric anesthesia. And so I was there, um, you know, part of the course and being one of the faculty and teaching some of the anesthesia providers there. And, you know, it's, it's a huge gap in knowledge sometimes that you, you realize 
because of lack of resources and lack of uh, just education and training and capacity building. So a lot of work to be done. Actually, two days ago, I was on meeting with Ethiopian anesthesiologists and physicians presenting, you know, some data with our COVID data that we have here and like our setup here, you know. And so I think it's just we need, I think in general, I think any physician should be involved in some, some type of global health work. It doesn't have to be someone like the physician traveling to the site. You know, when we think global health, we're thinking, oh, we, I have to go all the way to another site and provide care. Some of those care can be done online, virtually from your own office. You know, you can give a presentation, you can have ongoing mentorship, you can share data. And there's so many things that you can do just from the comfort of your office or home, you know. And so, uh, but I think it's really important to raise that, uh, to raise awareness on the lack of just proper training sometimes and uh, education and the capacity building in some of these countries, especially in anesthesia. Mm, yes. On one of uh, your services uh, in perioperative anesthesia care in at Cure Ethiopia, you posted on your Instagram, you said, I learned that good medicine doesn't always require the fanciest instruments or extensive medical knowledge, but a few educated individuals who care for the well-being of another. Can you talk to us about what you mean by that? Because I loved, I loved what you said there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. I was at Cure, I think it was last year, around this time. Last year, like maybe in March of last year. And I was a resident, you know, and so I went there and I worked with one of the local anesthesiologists there. And I was able to see how the staff worked together, you know, and here is a pediatric hospital and they basically provide free care for kids who have uh, limb deformities when they were born or because of trauma. And they also provide uh, surgeries for kids who have uh, like um, burns, like history of burns. So it can be burned from like uh, boiling water, like so accidentally landing on them or, uh, you know, like some kind of a fire, but they take care of burn victims and limb deformities slash trauma victims that are pediatric. And it's all funded. It's an NGO. So it's, uh, you know, it's the funding, it, the patients don't pay anything pretty much. And the staff is paid by the Cure Society. And, you know, when I was there, I was really able to see that even though there is not much in the hospital, like the anesthesia setup and the surgical setup, everything is very modest. And if you compare it to this country, you'll say, oh my goodness, they're lacking so much. They don't have all these things that we have here. And they're lacking so much staff. They don't have many people. You know, there's so many things that you can point fingers to and say, these are all the things that are lacking. But you can also see the positive in this and see how, despite all the things that they don't have, they still made it work for their situation and they're saving a lot of kids' lives. Well, I wouldn't say lives, but they're saving their limbs and legs and the kids can walk again and, you know. And so really for me, I was able to see that when we talk about medicine, sometimes we always talk about the next new best thing, what's the best technology, what's the best thing that came out, what's the best study that came out, you know. And sometimes at the core, you just realize medicine is, is really is good people, who have good knowledge, taking care of other good people, you know, <laughs> for me. Mm -hmm. So they really have to have good intention, to be compassionate, to really, to be there as someone who's truly caring for another individual. And sometimes we lack that here in this country because there's these insurance policies and insurance companies that come in the way and want 
medicine has become like a business almost. So you sometimes forget that you're not here making a business transaction. You're here providing the best care you can for your patient, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. That really spoke to my heart because I truly value the relationship between physicians and patients. And I think to heal a person, first comes the relationship between physicians uh, and the patient. Otherwise, it's nearly impossible because, you know, as a patient, we want to trust our physicians and we want to be feeling empowered. And that's just part of the whole integrative healing is that connection, that patient-physician relationship. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. You also are the founder of Mentor Me MD. Can you speak to us about what that organization is and what it does? Yeah. So Mentor Me is something I started uh, actually last year in November. So it hasn't fully been a whole six months yet, but I started it from actually Instagram. So I had a lot of pre-medical students reaching out to me, asking me for advice and what they should be doing and things like that. So I decided to just create this uh, mentorship platform for pre-medical students and mostly underserved or underprivileged or underrepresented students who want to go to medical school and don't necessarily have all the tools they need to get there in terms of mentorship. So they don't know when to apply, how to apply, what kind of score they need, if their application is strong enough and things like that. So, so I basically created it and I had six of my other girlfriends who are physicians involved. And these are, you know, people I know from school. I have, an, there's an anesthesiologist, there's two anesthesiologists, there's an ophthalmologist, there's an emergency medicine physician, uh, there's a rheumatologist, and then I feel like I'm missing someone. But there's, I think, internal medicine, yeah. And so these are physicians who are working and who are willing to give back. And the mentors are all minority females incidentally so and all my mentees are uh, minority females as well so and a lot of us in general in the mentorship pool are immigrants as well the mentees are a lot some of them are immigrants as well so I wanted to make sure to match them in a way that they can understand each other so there's seven mentors and seven mentees for now and they're all doing really well Um, we advise them on like personal statements, we review their CV and resumes, we advise them on how to get letter of recommendations for medical school, we advise them on what kind of activities they need to be doing or shadowing experience and research, just overall in MCAT studying and things like that. These are things that a lot of pre-medical students have intrinsically because they have family members who are physicians or have an auntie or uncle or someone in their vicinity who's a physician. And so we unfortunately don't have that luxury sometimes. For me, I'm the first person to go to medical school. So I had no idea how to navigate the system. So for me, I had to learn the hard way. You know, I had to ask people, ask a bunch of questions and learn from my mistakes and failures. And I feel like to the young generation who's coming our way and want to be where we are, I think we owe to them to kind of mentor them and get them to where we are in a much easier way, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful that you're giving back to your community, giving back to, you know, when you have something you give. And I love that. I love that you're doing that. So thank you so much for that. And, you know, I know we're pressed in time. You're an extremely busy person, but I don't want to end before I ask you, you know, how are you coping with as a frontline healthcare worker? You're risking your life every time you go to the hospital. 
Well, first of all, I'm so grateful. We're all as listeners and as a community, we thank you for the work that you do. But if there's anything that you want to say to us from your experience from this and also how you're coping, if there is anything that you want to share. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, for me, I am a frontline worker because I do take care of these COVID patients and any anesthesiologist in general is a frontline worker because we are called for intubations. And so we are uh, the ones who put the endotracheal tube into the patient when they need to be mechanically ventilated. Some ICU physicians do it on their own, but most of the times anesthesia or the emergency medicine team also intubates the patient in the ED. So definitely frontline workers. And it is a scary time. There's a lot going on. <laughs> There's a lot going on in terms of information and just like bias in general. For me, I'm coping okay. I think I'm doing fine. I have a pretty strong will. And, you know, I think for anesthesia, we work in such high stress environment anyways that this is not something that's stressing us extremely, at least not in my department here. We have put a, a few protocols and routine changes for how we do things normally just because of this. We have actually created a team that just is focused on intubating COVID patients. And we have created some operating room setup and changes because of, of COVID particularly. And I'm actually one of the co-leads for both of those teams. And it's going fine. I think for me, what's tiring is the logistical things that come with it. Like, you know, now you can't just show up to work. You have to make sure you have to do X, Y, and Z because of COVID to just do your job, you know? And so I think that's one big hurdle, not just for anesthesia, but all providers in general. Like, you know, you get to the hospital, there's screening, there's more screening, you have a cough, then you're out of work and you're being tested. You know, you sneeze and then everyone is alarmed and asking you if you have COVID, you know? So for us, it's just like the stress not only comes from taking care of these patients, but just all these hospital-wide changes that we're making overall. And then one other thing I would like to add, I guess, is for, for one of the hospital changes that we've had is Patients are not able to come in with their family members and they're, you know, coming in by themselves because of nationwide hospital policy now. They can't really have someone with them. And it's extremely hard to be alone in this situation as a patient. I can't even imagine it, you know. I can't imagine being a patient with COVID and I have no family members or anyone with me in the hospital, let alone when I'm getting intubated. So the biggest thing I'm having a, a lot of struggle with is when we go intubate patients in the ICU, so sometimes our pop patient population here, the majority of them don't speak English sometimes. We have a large Hispanic population and other population from other uh, countries, and some of them don't speak English, you know. And so it's extremely hard to explain someone over the phone with a translator that they need to be intubated as they're short of breath and unable to breathe regardless, and they have no one next to them, you know. So I think for me, the biggest thing is the patients not having family members with them to explain to them what's going on. Even if it's an mm. English-speaking uh, patient, it's just really hard to see them suffer on their own, you know? So I think that's the biggest thing and problem I have right now is uh, policies in the hospital that stop patients from uh, patients' family from coming in. I understand why those policies were in place, but I think there has to be a better way of doing this. There's been a lot of ethical discussion regarding when do we bring a patient family in? Should we even bring them in, you know? And so I think that's the biggest thing I'm having a little bit of trouble coping with right now. Otherwise, I'm doing okay. You know, I, as I said earlier, I do some of my normal, regular routines that keep me sane and mentally healthy. In terms of mental health, actually, I want to say something in regards to COVID, you know, 
obviously New York is hardly hit by this and providers in New York are under a lot of stress. You know, California in general is doing okay, you know, but compared to New York, I think New York is having such a huge hit and causing a lot of anxiety among medical providers, physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, everyone who's who's working to make sure this patients are taken care of. And recently, I think it was last week, one of the Columbia emergency physician, emergency medicine physician, her last name is Dr. Breen, committed suicide. She was a very well-respected and loved physician. Actually, I have a friend who has worked with her pretty closely in that same department. And so this was a physician who's otherwise fine, has no history of mental illness that we know of, who committed suicide because of this stress level and pandemic that's happening, you know? And so I think this raises a lot of questions in terms of what are we doing to make sure frontline healthcare providers are getting the necessary help they need in terms of, you know, help mentally that they need. And also what are we doing moving forward in general for health frontline workers in general, healthcare workers in general to address this like burnout, you know, there's been a discussion of physician burnout, uh, you know, medical provider burnout in general. How are we addressing that going forward? So, you know, I think that's a big discussion that should happen and hopefully will happen because of COVID and moving forward is addressing physician burnout and medical provider burnout in the future. Wow. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, you know, there has been a lot of uh, nice things that are being done, people bringing in food for physicians and definitely encouraging them. But there needs to be more than that. Definitely. There needs to, you know, this is extremely sad. I didn't hear about that. And um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I honestly believe that, you know, one person's story definitely heals another person. And I'm sure from everything that you've said in here, a lot of people will gain a lot from every single thing that you've said. And I truly, truly appreciate you. Thank you so much for being here in your very busy schedule. One thing I want to ask is, you know, you've shared so much with us. How can me and my listeners serve you? What can we do to serve you? You know, again, thank you so much for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here and talk about this, you know, and uh, I'm very thankful that I'm in this position to help others in many aspects, you know. Uh, I think one thing we can do as a community in general, and I'm not sure who's listening to this, but it's first of all to really not only work on our own mental health, but work, address the mental health of our surrounding people, you know, like your friends, your families, everyone around you, you know, making sure they're doing okay during this time. Like, how are you doing with me? Are you doing okay? You know, that's one thing we can do right now. In terms of empowering me specifically, you know, I do a lot of mentorship and I do a lot of global health work. In the future, I plan to do something a little bit more sustainable in Ethiopia, maybe having a an, an organization that has a continuous connection and uh, inf- like flux of information for uh, providers in Ethiopia. So I'll, hopefully in the future, in the near future, I'll establish that. I'm doing it on my own now, uh, just personally, but I, I would really love to have a community of physicians from here. doesn't matter if you're from Ethiopia or not, any physician or even nursing, a platform for us to create, to exchange information from here to some of the countries that need it the most. So moving forward, just, you know, if you're on Instagram, follow me and look out for, you know, things like when I announce like mentorship programs or organizations like this that I might be creating, you just would love your support in terms of that. So 
on my Instagram is dr.beti, B-E-T-I. So just follow me on there. I usually have information in terms of mentoring and reaching out to other physicians in other countries as well. I have some information COVID-related at times. So uh, I think that's just the kind of support I need right now. Dr. Beatty, thank you so much. You're truly, truly a beautiful soul. I appreciate you so much. And thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Ade. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. What a truly, truly inspiring soul Dr. Beatty is. She really has a beautiful heart. And I honestly enjoyed every minute of this episode. Talking to her was so inspiring. And she's so thoughtful. I learned from her that, you know, we still need to give us time. You know, it doesn't matter what our career is, what we do. We could be mothers, doctors, different professions. It's truly important to still pursue our dreams, whether it's traveling, spending time with family, spiritual routines. You know, we definitely need things that ground us. Otherwise, we will be lost and we're doing a disservice not only to ourselves, but our profession and our families and our loved ones. So she's truly inspiring in the fact that she takes her time for herself and grounds herself. And she has such a giving heart. You know, the fact that she's going into developing countries and working with physicians and you can see from how she speaks that she truly, truly cares about her patients and her work. And I think that's just such a gift to be in a profession, to truly give your heart, especially in the medical field, in the field where we are dealing with people who are so vulnerable and to connect with them and build that patient-physician relationship, which is so critical. I truly commend her for that. And her mentorme.md, the fact that she's also pulling up people from underneath her so that, you know, they can pursue themselves, their dreams in becoming physicians. I think that's just totally fascinating. And I can't speak enough to how much I appreciate her. I'm sure you guys enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it. Give me a review. Give me a five-star review and write down what you think about this episode. Share it with people that you think will love it, will benefit from it, because that will support me and support a lot of people as well. So, beautiful souls, I truly hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, love you. Stay in peace.